Welcome back to the program. Years from now, we'll look back on the way that we treat cancer today with poisons and chemo and radiation, and we'll look at it exactly the same way we view leaching and snake oil. Today, many look for alternative cutting-edge cures that, in fact, may be the precursor of future medicine. Back in the 19th century, as patients looked to avoid leaching and bleeding and even things like induced vomiting, Their search gave way to a host of alternative practices that have become some of the most fundamental practices and ideas of health and modern medicine. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Erica Janik. She is a producer and editor of the Wisconsin Public Radio series, Wisconsin Life. She's the author of four award-winning history books, and it is my pleasure to welcome her here today to talk about her newest work, Marketplace of the Marvelous, The Strange Origins of Modern Medicine, Erica Janik, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you here. It's interesting to look at what the traditional medical practices were back in the 19th century, and they were a pretty ugly collection of treatments. Talk a little bit about that first. Yeah, you know, if you went to see a doctor in 1800, uh, the treatment that you were most likely to get was actually bloodletting. If you had a fever, uh, they thought the way to relieve that was to, you know, take a couple pints of your blood. Uh, They would also give you different drugs that would cause you to sweat or to vomit. Um, And, you know, this was based on a medical theory, and it was actually a theory that was thousands of years old. It went back to ancient Rome and Galen and his idea of the four humors, which, which basically meant a body in balance. And so they thought that disease came when your body was out of balance. And so the way to restore it was by one of these very drastic measures. And of course, because of that, because it was so unpleasant, there were many that looked for what were considered then alternative therapies. Talk a little about that. Yeah. So, you know, medical care was really, had been kind of stagnant for a really long time. And sickness was a major part of people's lives. People were sick for almost all of their lives. And so people were really looking for a way to feel better. You know, it's just like what we want today. Um, And so in the 19th century in particular, as kind of new technology and industrialization is really remaking Americans' lives from where they work to where they live um, to how they're even getting around, people are then looking at medicine and saying, well, this isn't actually getting any better. Um, And so anyone who could offer a treatment that maybe didn't hurt as much as bleeding, tasted better than mercury, and maybe cost less and allowed you to treat yourself was was bound to be very, very popular. It's interesting to look at the way in which it was considered then alternative medicine and then look at the lines to what we consider alternative medicine today. I mean, whether it was things like the hydro baths that people did or the wraps or the use of magnets, it's interesting how the idea of health as opposed to sickness started to evolve. Yeah, you really find that with these kind of um, alternative practitioners, they were called irregular in the 19th century. Um, They were some of the biggest proponents of preventative health. That was really not a part of what mainstream doctors were actually doing. They were really just responding to disease and sickness where it occurred. Um, They really weren't spending a lot of time thinking about how to actually prevent disease from happening in the first place. And that became a real prime concern of these irregular healers. And so they started promoting all kinds of wild ideas like exercising, bathing regularly, drinking water, eating fruits and vegetables. Um, They also offered theories, you know, for how to actually cure disease as well. But a lot of them were really hoping that they could wipe out disease in the first place so that disease would never even occur. And there, there was kind of a moralistic idea attached to it as well. People thought that by having better health, 
that that would make the country more perfect and humanity more perfect. Um, and that and that moralistic idea attached to health, I think, is still around to this day. You know, there's still this idea that you know if you exercise and eat well, that that makes you a better person <laughs> than someone who you know is maybe overweight. How did that idea begin to evolve? As you look at it in the 19th century, as some of these these preventive practices came online, how did that idea of equating that moralistic idea to health begin to evolve? Well, you, I think you find that in the 19th century, there's there's kind of a, a moralistic idea kind of overarching over everything. You know, there's kind of reformers of all different types that are that are really trying to abolish slavery, fight for women's rights, get people to stop drinking. Um, the Second Great Awakening was a big religious revival, and so a lot of people were really focused on kind of trying to make themselves better. Um, this self-improving streak has a long history in America, in, in America. You find even in colonial days that people really wanted to make themselves better, and they were constantly looking for new ways to do that. And in the 19th century, the way that really became more popular, um, in the past it had kind of been people looking to religion more for their answers, but in the 19th century, you know, people are kind of looking at science as well, and they're very hopeful that science and science can kind of help them uh, figure out how to how to live healthier lives, better lives, um, and so so being better and and being healthy start start coming hand in hand in the 19th century. These ideas that we we take for granted today, things like bathing regularly and exercise, and as you mentioned before, vegetables, etc. How did those ideas begin to evolve? I mean, we as I say, we take them for granted today, but they they were pretty alternative in those days. They were, you know, when people would go see a hydropath, those were water care doctors. You know, they were really telling people that you needed to take a bath every day, and people were kind of unnerved by this. You know, you, you'll find actually letters written to newspaper editors saying, is it actually safe for me to be doing this? Um, but over the over time, as, as the decades go on, as these, as these therapies become more popular, um, and medical science starts to advance too, uh, people get really concerned about uh, the cleanliness of their cities. That, that plays a big part in this. As, as America becomes more industrial, more people are moving into the cities, the conditions that people are living in are pretty awful. And so people are looking for uh, ways to clean up the city, and they're also looking to some of these very popular irregular health ideas um, that, were, that did seem to make people happier and healthier in a way. And so you start to see mainstream medicine start to incorporate a lot of these new ideas that are coming out of these irregular groups, um, because mainstream medicine itself is changing dramatically in the 19th century. Uh, the ger germs were actually discovered in the late 19th century. We didn't know anything about those beforehand. Um, there's new laboratory practices. Hospitals are rising up. And so mainstream medicine itself is kind of taking on a completely new form uh, by the late 19th century. And part of taking that new form is absorbing ideas from all around. And some of those ideas came out of these groups that they were calling quacks. And, of course, there were a lot of quacks and an awful lot of snake oil that went along with all of these positive things. Absolutely. There were definitely people who were just trying to bilk people out of money. I think, you know, you'll find that in almost any industry. Um, and, and in the 19th century is really when America uh, became more entrepreneurial in a way. It's when our capitalist economy really started to take form. And you'll also find that in medicine. Um, and, and there were certainly people that were very well-intentioned with their remedies. And, of course, there were people that were also just trying to take advantage of people. I think it's... um. I think it's 
hard to necessarily figure out the motivation of some of these people because you do find people that were selling what we would think of now as quack remedies who truly believed in what they were doing. And so, um, you know, people like Lydia Pinkham, she sold a remedy that was said to help uh, female troubles. And she'd actually been brewing up this this remedy on her home stove for decades. Um, and it was only when her family fell into some kind of financial trouble that she decided to actually sell it to make some money off of it. And being a doctor in the 19th century wasn't the well-paying profession that it is today. And so some actually trained doctors sold their own remedies, advertised them in newspapers, had kind of secret ingredients to them, because it was a way to support themselves. It was also a period in which homeopathy started to, to evolve as another one of these alternative practices. Talk about that. Yeah, so homeopathy is actually a very interesting one because it probably posed the largest threat to mainstream medicine in the 19th century. Um, it had dozens of medical schools actually converted mainstream doctors to follow it. Um, homeopathy was very, very popular in part because its remedies tasted pretty good and they didn't uh, cause you, you know, any kind of immediate harm or, or visible harm, things like that bleeding and blistering and vomiting would do. Um, and it, its methods also seemed very scientific for the time and, and much more scientific than mainstream medicine. Um, its founder had really instilled these kind of principles of experimentation and observation from the very beginning. And it was actually founded by a mainstream doctor, Samuel Hahnemann, uh, he had done all of this research in Europe and, and used his scientific training and applied it to his new theory of homeopathy. And so you find that people were looking around and they're interested in science and they're seeing that homeopathy uh, seems to be the most scientific thing around. And people are claiming that it's, that it's working wonders for them. And so homeopathy becomes very, very popular, particularly with the middle class and upper classes, um, people that have money to spend. And so they're, they're spending their money on homeopathy. And they're also buying home homeopathy kits. You could just pick them up at your, at your local store and you could practice homeopathy on yourself, on your family, and your friends. Um, Americans really liked that ability to treat themselves, not having to travel to a doctor, not having to spend money on medical care. So homeopathy becomes a huge movement in the 19th century and really only uh, starts to die out um, in the early 20th century. We also saw really the beginnings of psychotherapy and mental health as something to be treated within a medical context in this period. That's right. You do find uh, uh, quite a few different treatments that are that are really focused on your mental state, um, and the first one that really comes up is is mesmerism, um, which really focuses on kind of harnessing this this power that they called animal magnetism, which was this invisible fluid that flowed through the universe um, and in and out of your body. And you know, you did it was kind of a, a mental cure, but it's not the only one that's coming up. Uh, you also find things like phrenology, which is really looking at uh, the supposedly, that your, the shape of your brain, um, the bumps on it that were then imprinted on your skull, that you could actually read your character by feeling the top of your head. Um, and so throughout the 19th century, people become more interested in looking at their brain and trying to figure out what this mysterious organ is all about and, and trying to figure out, you know, 
questions that we still are looking for today. Who are we? What makes us what we are? Are there ways to improve ourselves? Um, and, and these are a lot of the questions that these kind of pop psychologies that are, that are coming out of these irregular groups are, are giving Americans uh, one method of answering. What was going on with respect to surgery and anesthesia? So a lot of these uh, mental cures uh, were some of the some early attempts to try to anesthetize people during surgery because your options really when you went when you went under the knife uh, in the late 18th century early 19th century were that you basically bit down on a stick or they often tied you to a bed to to keep you still while they perform some kind of surgery. Um, one of the things that mesmerism did is it put you in this kind of trance-like state, um, what we would now think of as hypnosis. It didn't earn that name, though, until later in the 19th century. And so people started experimenting with doing surgery while people were under this kind of this trance state, and people were reporting that, you know, they were performing surgery with no pain for the patient, and the patient didn't remember anything about it. Um, and, and this was very common into the 19th century. It was being done at mainstream medical facilities, because um, doctors really were trying to figure out a way that they could actually perform surgery without, you know, really hurting you. What were some of the things that you discovered in this that surprised you in terms of the modernity of them even back in the 19th century? I think one of the biggest things that really surprised me was just how many of the practices and things that they were doing we're still doing today. You know, I, you know, as I started reading more about hydropathy, it was people, you know, that often took it to a, a rather extreme end. You know, it was often 18 hours of bathing and, and washing and taking showers. But at the same time, you know, they really were just promoting a lot of preventative health measures that I do to this day. I mean, I can't remember the last time I didn't have my water bottle with me at all times. Um, and, you know, I definitely bathe regularly. And, and, and so many of these things didn't really seem all that outlandish to me. You know, the idea that we're fascinated by our brain. You know, we continue to be just as fascinated by our brain as people were in the 19th century, trying to figure out this mysterious organ that seems to have so much power, and yet is we still know so little about it. And then one of the other things that was so surprising to me as I was looking into this, and something that I really just loved about it was realizing how many women were allowed to become doctors in alternative medicine. They really were not welcome into mainstream medicine at all, but irregular health really welcomed women both as practitioners and as patients, and they were serving a really, really vital need. A lot of women were not getting the medical attention that they needed because social propriety meant that they often didn't go see a male doctor, and even when they did, that male doctor often wouldn't really actually examine them because he was worried about offending her propriety. So allowing women to become doctors really was a boost up for women's health. And a lot of women's activists, uh, people fighting for suffrage like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, really saw all of these irregular treatments as really empowering and a, and a tool for women's liberation. And really set the stage for some of the ongoing battles that still exist between traditional and alternative medicine because the traditional practitioners didn't take all of this very seriously, particularly the ones, as you say, that, that women got into. 
Exactly. Uh, mainstream medicine hated all of these alternative remedies um, and did everything in their power, basically, to try to uh, discredit them and ridicule them. Um, and part of it was, you know, that economic threat that they were really posing. But also, anything that women were involved in was kind of naturally seen as being, therefore, ridiculous because uh, the the predominant view of women is that they were irrational and emotional, kind of ruled by reproduction, so they couldn't be trusted anyway. And so that kind of gave irregular health a bad name as well um, for mainstream medicine. And you do still find, you know, these battles between the two still playing out to this day, though obviously mainstream medicine does have a more enlightened view of women at this point. <laughs> right. It's also interesting to see the way the whole mind-body connection begins to evolve during this period, even with things like placebo effect, which started to arise during this period. Yeah, um, a lot of these alternative therapists were, were very, very interested in, in figuring out what that mind-body connection is. That's a lot of these, like mesmerism and phrenology, um, they really took account not only of what was going on in your mind, but also what was going on in your body and trying to figure out what the connections were between these two things. Uh, this was a pretty out there idea. Mainstream medicine was not really uh, looking at this at that time. Um, but one of the things that they did was really take this kind of holistic view of health. Um, often appointments with an irregular practitioner would last for, for several hours because they not only were asking you about your, your symptoms of your disease, but they also wanted to know everything else about you, what your environment was like, what kind of work that you did, because they thought that there was some connection between your environmental factors and the disease that you might be suffering. Um, and, and this becomes much more accepted by the 20th century. You know, this is, I think, something that has really integrated itself into mainstream medicine, too. But it really began as this kind of outlier idea in the 19th century. There's also the ways in which celebrity culture applies to this, because many of these treatments, once they were undertaken by people that were, were famous at the time, took on a whole different cast. <laughs> That's right. Um, a lot of these remedies became very, very popular with all of the, the famous people that you can think of in the 19th century. Abraham Lincoln, Mark Twain, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Catherine Beecher, Charles Darwin, um, almost anyone you can think of in the 19th century uh, tried one of these irregular therapies, and many of them became very big advocates of them. And as people learned, you know, just as celebrity culture today, you know, as we learn that a favorite writer or a politician is trying something, that kind of gives it some cachet and allows it to gain a little bit more attention. Um, and you find also that a lot of these writers um, that became big fans of irregular medicine start actually putting some of these therapies into their books. Um, so Mark Twain must have tried every irregular therapy around, both for out of curiosity, and he often mocked them in his work, but you'll find all kinds of mentions of homeopathy, water cures, phrenology throughout his short stories, and this certainly gave a boost up just in terms of recognition of these uh, different therapies, and I think allowed them to become kind of cultural phenomenons. It, they really didn't Almost all of them became much bigger than just a, a medical theory. A lot of them really inserted themselves into religion and politics and literature. And did you try any of these irregular therapies in reporting the book? <laughs> I did, actually. I did go to a homeopath. Um, and it was fascinating, and it reminded me so much of, I mean, I had done a whole bunch of reading about what the experience was like um, in the 19th century, and I would say it's fairly similar today, other than she was looking things up in the computer as well. But, you know, I had a three-hour appointment, and we talked about all kinds of things, things 
some things I'd never thought about before, um, just some of the questions. It was uh, all kinds of things about my environment, my workspace, my living space. Um, so I did try that. Um, I would say, you know, I, I didn't go see a hydropath because <laughs> the hydropathy of the 19th century doesn't exist uh, in the form that it used to, but so many of the things that they advocate I do on a regular basis. So in some ways, I think I'm already a hydropath. <laughs> Erica Janik, the book is Marketplace of the Marvelous, The Strange Origins of Modern Medicine, just out from Beacon. Erica, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.